We're continuing our study in the book of Ephesians, and I need to tell you right when we start that um, uh, Shelly and I had this squabble a couple days or weeks ago. Um, this isn't confession time. I'm making a point with this, but we had one of these, you know, I know that no other married couple here uh, has these sorts of things, but once in a while we have a, a little rumble, a uh, little disagreement, a little uh, spiritual warfare. <laughs> Um, and this was a pretty healthy one on, a, on the Richter scale. This was about a 7.8. I don't know if any, if the rest of you measure your arguments in terms of Richter scales. This wasn't the big one. We've come close to that. But this was a healthy one. It was up there. I forget what we were even arguing about. It, it was something to do with house chores and, and something along those lines. And I, you know how these things evolve, it's like it starts off as a discussion and pretty soon you're discussing kind of more loudly and energetically and, and before you know it you're not discussing at all, you're hollering. And uh, oh, it just got out of control and I remember I was just so angry and she was so angry and, and she thought that I wasn't, you know, being really consistent with what I preach and that really gets under my goat and what really made me mad was she was right and so I was like, I was really angry. So I ended up out in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Maturity here. Um, actually, I started cleaning the garage just to prove to her what a great husband I was. I was going to, because that's what the fight has something to do with chores. Anyways, as I was cleaning this garage, I knew in my head that I was going to have to swallow it and go back in there and ask for forgiveness because I knew that I had um, significantly blown it. And I hated that thought. It was just like a needle in my eye or something. I was like, I, I can't do it. I don't want to. I was also going to have to forgive her for whatever degree she was responsible for this escalation of tempers. And I didn't want to do that either. It's, it's the kind of feeling, don't tell me that you don't have it once in a while, of sort of a, a sinister sort of enjoyment about savoring your anger. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you feel like somehow you're punishing them by being angry with them. And, and that feeling of being right and that feeling of self-pity and, and how any other person in the world would just be grateful to have you as a spouse. But no, she's got to vote. You know, that, that kind of asinine fantasy that you have. Oh, you know. Yeah, okay, so, but I knew that we... You know, you can't go on very long like this. I hate this kind of tension. You're going to have to swallow it and go there and make reconciliation. And it was like so hard. I kept on cleaning and recleaning the garage just to buy time. Why is that? Why is it so difficult to ask for forgiveness and so difficult to give forgiveness, at least at times? And because it's difficult... Two things very often result. Number one, because it's difficult, very frequently we don't do it. There's a part of me that just thought if I stay out in that garage long enough, maybe we'll forget about this whole thing. You know, but I didn't want to sleep out there for five nights to find out. But, we, but a lot of times it's just too painful and too hard, so we bury it, we try to ignore it, we try to go on with our life. So we don't forgive and we don't ask for forgiveness. And so we kind of just swallow the anger, swallow the pride, or not swallow the pride, we should swallow the pride, but we swallow the anger, the bitterness, or what have, have you, and it begins to pollute our whole system. It doesn't go away, it just goes beneath the surface. So we end up kind of polluting our whole spiritual environment. The second thing that happens when we do that is that we very frequently 
begin to project onto God that pollution. And so we think that God has the same trouble forgiving us as we have forgiving others. Like he's just up there, really getting ticked off. One more time, he's about had it with you. And maybe you've already stepped over that line. And both ideas have serious repercussions for our life. Serious repercussions that we need to talk about. We're talking this morning about forgiveness. About receiving forgiveness and about giving forgiveness. We're continuing our series on the, the place of the Christian in God's plan of salvation. We spent the first several weeks talking about the role of the church in general, planned and predestined from the foundation of the world. Now we're talking about the individual's role within that plan. Last week we saw that the first thing that happens to an individual when they align themselves with that plan is that they're redeemed. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of God's grace which he has lavished upon us. That's Ephesians 1 7. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, this forgiveness of sins. The redemption is the price that Jesus paid to set us free. The forgiveness is the means by which God cleans us up now that we are free. But before I say another word, I want to pray that God would anoint this message. Lord, I feel like the, 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 the hardest thing that we could be up against this morning, Lord, is that this would sound too familiar, too cliche-ish. Lord, make it come alive to us by... Using the simple words to reveal to us the full depth and the width and the height of the beauty of your forgiveness towards us and the need for us to forgive others. God, make it come alive. Get us off of our seat, Lord, and into the playing field and into a vibrant relationship with you, Lord God, by showing us the beauty of who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Redemption, we saw last week, means to buy out of the marketplace. And we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the price that he pays. And what it means, we saw last week, is that the Lord lays down his life in order to buy us out of slavery to sin, in order to buy us out of slavery to, to Satan, and in order to buy us out of slavery to a destiny that would have ended up in eternal destruction. The Lord laid down his life to do that. Forgiveness... Whereas redemption means out of the marketplace, to buy out of the marketplace, the word forgiveness in Greek literally means to separate or to send away. To separate or to send away. And the impression that we get from this verse, it's very, the two terms, redemption and forgiveness, are very close to one another, but they're distinct. Redemption is the act whereby God brings us out of slavery, but forgiveness is the act whereby God separates us from that slavery. Or redemption is the act whereby God brings us out of slavery to sin, but forgiveness is the act whereby God separates us from the guilt of that sin. And thereby, it's a more personal term in a sense because it deals with us personally and separates us personally from the sin that we were enslaved to. Two very closely related terms. Now, to understand this biblical concept of forgiveness, this separation from, we need to go back to the Old Testament. We need to go back to the book of Leviticus. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. You don't have to. I'll explain what it says. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, we find what we find throughout the book of Leviticus, and that is typology or symbols that are pointing to the future Christ, written some 
1,200, maybe 1,500 years before the time of Christ, we have here a number of things that point to when Jesus Christ will come, a lot of symbols. In Leviticus 16, what we have is the Day of Atonement. One day out of each year, the Israelites would gather together and there'd be in the Holy of Holies in this, in this temple that they had constructed. The high priest would go in there and the Lord would come down and depending on what the Lord did with regard to some of the sacrifices that they had offered there, the Israelites would know whether or not their sins for that year were forgiven. It's kind of bizarre stuff and everything in the book of Leviticus is bizarre until you understand that it's pointing towards Jesus Christ. What we find here in the book of Leviticus, now hang with me on this because this gets really important and it gets really beautiful, is that Aaron, on the Day of the Atonement, was to take two goats. Two goats. One was to be used as a sacrifice to the Lord and was the goat of redemption. The other was to be used as a scapegoat and was not to be sacrificed, but was to be sent away, removed from the people of Israel. Let me read it to you here. And in chapter 16, verses um, 15 and 16, the Lord says this, Then he, Aaron, shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering of the people. That's sin offering. That's the offering that's made because of their sin, the atonement. And he is to take its blood behind the curtain, and he'll sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And in this way, he'll make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. So here we have this first goat, the goat of redemption. And the Lord is saying that in order to symbolize, to begin to teach humanity the lesson, that the wages of sin is death, and in order to teach humanity the lesson... That blood must be shed in order to atone for sin. Aaron is to take this goat and make a sin offering of it, and that sin becomes, uh, or that, that offering becomes, uh, makes that goat a redemptive goat. The goat pays the price for the sin of Israel. Are you following me on this? But now there's another goat that he has, and here's what he's supposed to do with this goat. Both goats are pointing towards the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 20 of Leviticus 16, he says this. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat, the goat he hasn't sacrificed yet. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all of their sins, and put them on the goat's head. I want you to think about this for a second. Put those sins on the goat's head. And then he shall send away the goat into the desert in care of a man appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all the sins of Israel to a solitary place. And the man shall release it into the desert. Bizarre stuff, but if you see what it's pointing to, it gets pretty beautiful. The one goat, Aaron is to cut apart, sprinkle the blood all over the place. That shows the need to make a blood sacrifice for sin because the wages of sin is death. 
With regard to the other goat, Aaron is to lay his hands on this goat, confess all the sins of Israel, and place them on that goat. It's as though that goat becomes a sort of sin absorption sponge and absorbs within himself, more specifically, absorbs within his head all the sins of Israel. Now, this didn't literally happen. The book of Hebrews tells us that, that the, uh, the, the sacrifice of, of bulls and goats never really atoned for sin, but it was a symbol of what was to come. And the picture that you have in Leviticus is this. All that appeared ungodly to, to Yahweh, all that was sinful before the all-holy God, and God sees sin accurately, and it is ugly. And if we saw sin accurately, we'd see it as being atrociously ugly as well. But the ugliness of the sin, the grotesqueness of the sin, the deformity of the sin, the stench of the sin, everything in the life of Israel that would ever separate Israel from the all-holy God and everything that God found to be abominable and disgusting in Israel was put upon the goat, and the goat became disgusting. And so the goat was sent off into the desert where it would surely die and never be seen again. And in this way, God separated the people whom he loved from the sin that separated him from the people he loved. Are you following me? The concept of forgiveness, the word means sent away from or to separate, ties in centrally to that act. What happened to, to, to those two goats in Leviticus? You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he played the role of both of those goats. It took two goats to get the symbolism of what Christ was going to do for us on the cross of Calvary. On the one hand, Jesus, on the cross of Calvary, he paid the price for our redemption. He was, the Bible says, the sacrificial lamb of God, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, the lamb that shed his blood in order that we might be bought with a price, in order that we might be freed from slavery and freed from sin and freed from the bondage of the devil and freed from a destiny in hell. He paid the price with his own life, and in so doing, he became the sacrificial lamb of God. But the Bible also portrays him as being the scapegoat. The word in Hebrew literally means the goat of removal. The goat of removal. Because the Bible says that not only did he pay the price for sin, but he became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. To become sin for us. And this isn't just a symbolic thing that God's talking about. He's not talking about a metaphorical thing. He's not saying it's as if Jesus became sin. He's saying that Jesus Christ really did become sin. The picture we need to get in our mind and what is surely the background of this is of Aaron in the Old Testament laying his hands on the sheep. It's as though the father laid his hands on his own son, his eternal begotten son, the one whom he has eternally loved and whose love defines the Godhead throughout eternity. The father laid his hands upon his son, now incarnate and hanging upon the cross. And there confessed, there confessed the sin, not only of Israel, but the sin of the whole world. Not only of the world that Jesus was a part of, but the totality of all the sin of the whole world past and the totality of all the sin of the whole world to come. All the sin of the world, every last detail, however great or however small, is put upon the head of Jesus Christ. And he becomes that sin. The all-holy, perfect, blameless Son of God becomes now 
the sin-filled scapegoat lamb of God. And I want us to think for a second what that must have looked like in a spiritual sense in the eyes of God the Father who detests all sin because he sees it for what it really is, destructive and putrid. And the beauty of his son, now as he hangs on the cross, becomes in the sight of God. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that he turned his face, and we all turned our face from him because the appearance was repulsive. As the grotesqueness and the deformity of all lying was put upon Jesus Christ, and the leprosy of all cheating was put upon Jesus Christ, and the boiling hideous deformity of all adultery and all lustful thoughts and all greed and all self-righteousness was put upon Jesus Christ. And every kind of malignant, spiritual malignancy, spiritual tumor, spiritual growth, whatever would deform the soul, all the racism and all the sectarianism and all the bitterness and all the unforgiven strife that we have, he absorbs it within himself and he becomes it, literally becomes it. What must that have looked like in a spiritual sense to God the Father? And so it's for this reason that Isaiah 53 tells us that when Jesus Christ became sin for us, the Bible says that the Father, Isaiah 53 verse 4, smote him. He became our sin and then he became the punishment for our sin. He smote him. It says he bruised him. It says he struck him. It says he pierced him. It says he trampled him. It says he crushed him, his only begotten son. Why? Because his son had become the sin of the world and it had to be punished. But not only that, that he did as a sacrificial lamb of God, which is why Isaiah 53 says he bore our sins, he bore our transgressions, he bore our sorrows, he bore all of our infirmities, Isaiah 53 tells us. He bore it, and in that sense paid the price for it. But then the Bible also says in Isaiah 53, verse 8, the Father cut him off from the land of the living. What happened to the scapegoat? was cut off from the land of the living, sent into the desert. And so also the picture that we get here is this, that when Jesus Christ absorbs all of the sin of the world and all the punishment for that sin, he plays the role of the sacrificial lamb of God and thereby purchases our redemption, but he also plays the role of the scapegoat and goes out into the, in, into the desert and thereby achieves for us our forgiveness, which is why the Bible can tell us that as far as the east is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our sin from us. That's what the word forgiveness entails. It's separation. It's sent offness. He separated us from our guilt and separated us from our sin and separated us from the punishment that we deserved because he put it on the head of his own son and sent him into the wilderness, sent him to the east and sent him to the west. Micah chapter 7 says this, that he trampled underneath himself our sin and transgression and then buried them in the depths of the sea. So where is your sin? You who are a believer here this morning, where is your sin? You know, there was a lady who was caught in the act of adultery in Jesus' ministry, and they, brought, they, they all brought accusations against her, and Jesus wrote something mysterious in the sand. Maybe it was Psalms 103, which says this, as far as the east is from the west, he's cast our sins from us. And they all left, and then Jesus asked the question, where are your accusers? She looked around, and she says, I don't know. This morning, we could ask the same question of ourselves and maybe even address it to the demonic realm. Where are our accusers? 
Where are our accusers? Where are our sins? The enemy, he, he doesn't get this. It's hard enough for redeemed people to understand, but the enemy doesn't get it. It, it confuses the uh, daylights out of him or the dickens out of him or the perdition out of him or other... You get the point. They don't understand this, and it bothers them because they want to be about accusing us. That's what the, what the word Satan means, adversary. The enemy wants to be about reaching into that desert and grabbing some of that sin and bringing it back and putting it on our head instead of keeping it on the head of the scapegoat where it belongs. And so he tries to do that. But the point of this whole passage is this. If we understand who we are, if we understand what the Lord has done for us, not only in his redemptive capacity, but in his forgiving capacity, and if we understand who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary, then the answer to the question of where is our sin must be something like this. It's way that way, and it's way that way. Find a scapegoat, and you might find the sin, but it's somewhere on the corner of the east, and it's somewhere on the corner of the west, which is to say, it's not around. It's gone. It's annihilated. It's done. We'll never see the scapegoat again, not in terms of that capacity of carrying our sin. So the enemy has nothing on us. The Lord separates us from the guilt and the sin and the stain that we had because he takes it and he bears it. He's sent out into the wilderness, three days in hell, sent out in the wilderness of God's forgetfulness, sent out in the wilderness of God's mercy, never to be seen again. It, this isn't a symbol we're talking about here. It's not a metaphor. It really happened. The center of history is this event. The turning point of every human life is this event. When God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's like this. I'll take his righteousness... I'll give it to you. I'll take your sin. I'll give it to him. Sound like a good deal? And that's what the gospel comes down to, folks. And that is good news. That is good news. You don't get better news than that. Here's what it means for us. I want to close by just drawing two quick implications for us. Here's what it means for us. If we understand this. Number one. you got to ask yourself this question. Have you in your own heart and in your own mind taken the sin of your life and put it on the head of the scapegoat and sent it off in the wilderness? In other words, have you accepted forgiveness for yourself? Forgiveness, separation from. Have you accepted it for yourself? It's easy for us to say, yeah, God forgives us. He loves us. You know, it's, we're, we're white as snow. It's easy to say that, but what sometimes happens in a believer's life, is that we say that, and yet we still own the past. We still own the wrong done. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you're saying, you have no idea what I did. You don't know how bad it is, how heinous it is, how ugly it is, how repulsive it is, how shameful it is. So I, I hang on to that. Yeah, God in theory forgives me, and yet you suffer, you pay the price of that your whole life. And it brings about the kind of depression and other kind of screwed up dysfunction that you have in your life because you can't let it go. You can't release it. You can't put it on the lamb, the goat, and send it into the wilderness. And the enemy is behind it because the enemy, what he wants to do is to take, take the stuff that Christ already paid for and make you pay for it again and again and again. It's like buying, it's like buying your clothes every time you wear them. You've got to pay for it all over again. The Lord wants you to see that you don't need to do it. It may be, 
it may be that the harm that you've inflicted on another person, and it may be that, 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 that the pain that you've caused is irreversible. Sometimes that happens in life. It may be that human reconciliation cannot be made. Maybe the person's dead, I don't know. But between you and God, it can be clean, forgiven, pure, and spotless. And that is freedom. That is freedom. You've got to release it. You've got to release it. I don't care how long it's been there. I don't care how deep it is a part of your identity. Why carry the guilt any longer? You're not the scapegoat. Jesus is. Put it on his head and send it in the wilderness. Which is to say, accept God's forgiveness for your life. Whatever, whatever the sin is. The second thing is this. Have you taken the sin of others against you and put them on a scapegoat and sent them into the wilderness? In other words, have you forgiven, separated from, released from others in terms of the wrongs that they have done to you? Unforgiveness, I want to just say this as straight as I possibly can. Unforgiveness is a spiritual cancer like no other kind of spiritual cancer. When you hold bitterness, anger, strife, vengeance in your spirit, however justified that anger and that vengeance might be, when you hold it there, it eats you alive. It destroys your soul. It doesn't even matter how justified it is to be there. It doesn't matter how long it's been there. It doesn't matter who says it ought to be there. It will destroy you if it stays there. It's a spiritual principle of the universe that that kind of emotion is pollution and it's got to come out. It's got to come out. It can't stay there. And yet in, the, in our fallen nature, there's something about us and it's part of the deception of the enemy that makes us think that somehow... Because we have a right to be angry, we're somehow more empowered for being angry. We're somehow punishing somebody else for being angry with them. It is pure deception. Because when you are vengeful and bitter and unforgiving towards another person, you're the one who pays. You're the one who pays. And it has got to come out. Some are maybe thinking here this morning, but you don't know what was done to me. For years and years and years, he did this to me. For, you don't know the kind of marriage that I went through. You don't know the kind of emotional abuse or the kind of physical abuse or the kind of spiritual abuse that I've been through. You have no idea. And it's easy for you to stand up there and say, release it. When you have no idea what I went through, I do know. I've had to do some releasing too. And I know it's hard. In fact... Humanly speaking, it is sometimes impossible. Sometimes it's impossible. But let me say this. We have an inheritance from the Father. Amen. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've seen that already. We are in Christ Jesus. And the riches of his glory now are at the accessibility of the believer. 
And what is impossible with you is possible with Jesus Christ. When God gives us forgiveness, he gives us the capacity to forgive because he places his own spirit of forgiveness, the spirit of Jesus Christ himself within us. He forgives us according to his riches in Christ's glory and he puts inside of us the riches of his inheritance inside of us so now we can forgive according to his riches. We can forgive according to his ability. It means just yielding to the spirit of forgiveness that's within you to release it, to let it go. There is, I understand, and it's important to understand, a time to go through anger. There's a time when you have been a victim where you need to be angry. You need, it, it's, it's, it's a stepping stone to, to be able to say out loud the anger and the wrath that you have. Go through that stage. You need to go through that stage, but always know one thing, that that stage is not a stopping point. And there's a lot of wrong-headed thinking in our culture that would tell you that that's a stopping point. You're a victim, and you'll be a victim the rest of your life. From a Christian point of view, that is sheer nonsense. You're nobody's victim, and you shouldn't be anyone's victim. Go through the stage where you get angry and rage and get it out of your system, but then allow the Lord to work through you to bring about the incredible, miraculous forgiveness. However much you forgive them, however much you take their sin and put it on the scapegoat and send it out in the desert, you know what? It's nothing compared to what God has forgiven you. You have to give in Christ Jesus. And that is freedom. That is freedom. You're no longer a victim when you have released them. You've now set them free. You've set yourself free. The, 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 the issue is gone. It's out in the desert. And now you're free. I told you about a letter I got last Easter. I close with this. A letter I got last Easter from a lady who was in prison from murdering her own baby. And someone had, someone had given her the book, Letters from a Skeptic, that my dad and I wrote, and she had become a believer, a Christian, and she wrote me this letter. In the letter, she says, you know, it's ironic. I'm in prison, and I may be in prison the rest of my life, but for the first time in my life, I feel, I feel free because I know I'm going to see my baby again, and I know my baby forgives me. A person who had experienced that forgiveness Forgiveness, whether it's towards you or forgiveness, whether it's through you, is what frees the soul. And this morning, I would implore you. Number one, if you're here this morning and you have never accepted the forgiveness of God, which comes through Jesus Christ, do so this morning. Don't walk out of here carrying your sin and your judgment on your own back when Jesus Christ has already paid the price for it. Accept his sacrifice. And the Bible says that the minute you do that, you're an heir of the kingdom, a child of God, and are pure and spotless in his sight because all that would separate you from God is now put upon Jesus Christ and all that is desirable in Jesus Christ is put upon you. The minute you believe, do it this morning. Do it this morning. And for others of us here this morning who are already believers, but you've got some cancer in your soul, you're hanging on to either unforgiveness of yourself or unforgiveness towards another. I implore you in Jesus' name to let it go, to let it go, to let Jesus do his miracle work through you and take that issue and put it on a lamb and send it into the desert forever and ever and ever and walk out of here free this morning. There'll be several people, three or four people up here who would love to pray with you. If you want to pray alone, come forward and pray alone. But there'll be some people up here who would love to join with you if that's the need that you have in your life. Let's go out of here in freedom, experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Shall we stand and close in prayer? Father, you have lavished us in your grace. 
bathed us in your grace, bathed us in your forgiveness. Where sin did abound, and in my life, Lord, it did abound, but where sin did abound, grace much more did abound, Lord. And so with every person here, Lord, I pray, God, that we might experience the washing of your grace, the basking of your grace, the lavishing of your grace as we go forth out of here, Lord. And there is some God who the enemy has polluted here by rooting into their hearts unforgiveness towards themselves or towards others. Father, I pray that you would break those strongholds this morning, call them forward, give them courage to confront it, to root it out, to put it on the lamb, to put it on the, in the desert, and to receive forgiveness. In your name we pray. Amen.